Genesis and a series entitled Gleanings Through Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, would you just flag one of those men that are coming up the aisle right now? They'll put a Bible into your hand and uh, so you can follow along. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you today. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to the, all uh, the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on him, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the, place in, uh, the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word as always. And we thank you for how it speaks uh, in, instruction into our lives, truth into our lives that will never disappoint. And we pray, Lord, that in these foundational chapters of your Bible that you would take these truths and you would make these truths foundational in our lives and in our relationship with you, our understanding of the world, our interaction with this world. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And this section of scripture uh, provides us with a divine revelation into the creation of Eve as a helper compatible uh, to Adam. And it also instructs us concerning God's establishment of his institution of, of marriage. I don't know if you've given it any thought, but it is important to realize that Adam and Eve were not created at the same moment in time, uh, nor were they created in exactly uh, the same way. They were each created on the sixth day of God's creation, but as we have already studied, Adam was created first, uh, from, uh, formed from the dust of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, that is Adam, became a living being. Eve was created uh, subsequently. It is important, I think, to realize that uh, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are not uh, conflicting accounts of the creation account. They are complementary. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 gives us kind of the, uh, the view from, you know, 33,000 feet. It gives us the overview of the creation of, of Adam and Eve and, and all the other aspects of 
creation. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God kind of begins to narrow the focus down to certain aspects of the creation that are important uh, to him that we would understand those things and for which he realizes we need a little bit more uh, elaboration. And so that's what chapter 2 is uh, about. Now, Now let's formally head into examining this Genesis account in terms of the creation of Eve and, and God's institution of this, this uh, uh, of marriage that, that followed immediately. In verses 18 to 22, we have the creation of, of Eve. And it's important to realize that the creation of Eve in terms of God's plan, it was always God's intent. And, and the process that resulted in her creation Uh, began with a particular observation that God made concerning Adam. And that uh, observation is in verse 18. It is not good that man should uh, be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so you notice that this, uh, it wasn't Adam who made this observation concerning himself uh, initially, but but it was God. And this was certainly uh, true of Adam in the sense that, that he was in need of a helper comparable to him, important in the sense that alone he couldn't possibly obey the command that God had uh, given to uh, Adam and Eve, and that is to be fruitful and multiply, chapter 1, verse 28. But it's also uh, generally true of, of most men that it's not good that we should dwell alone or be alone. Uh, we need to be married, and not merely for the, the sexual relationship that, uh, is, that is only to be expressed within uh, the, the, the parameters of a, of a commitment of, of marriage, but also for the companionship. I mean, the provision of, when it's done God's way, uh, the deepest spiritual and emotional and intellectual and physical human relationship a person uh, can experience in uh, life. It is important, though, to realize that uh, there are exceptions to the rule. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was, was not married. Jesus, of course, was not married, though uh, without any kind of uh, apology at all, he spoke very favorably of those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not physically, but the, the person who decides, I am not going to marry, whether male or female, I am not going to marry uh, as a, uh, in order that I might fully be able to give my life to God's calling upon my life, his purpose for my life, without uh, the distraction of, 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 of marriage. But all of that requires a very specific calling from God, a very specific grace from God, and, and Paul recognized that in writing uh, to the church at Corinth, for I wish that all men were even as I am myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. I think of one of my mentors, one of three mentors in my life, the three greatest mentors, a gentleman by the name of Bill McDonald, and he lived to the age of 90, served the Lord virtually all of his adult life. And uh, had, uh, one time I was uh, with him with a, a friend who was uh, single at the time, and uh, we were at Bill's house for lunch. 
and my friend being single, he asked Bill uh, whether, uh, why he never married. Was it something that he determined to do as a commitment to God or uh, the kingdom of God? And uh, Bill responded and he said, you know, I was always open to it. It just never happened. I never met that uh, woman. And sometimes that can be true of our, our lives as, as well. But barring a, a gift of celibacy for the sake of Christian work, uh, it is generally not good that a, a, a man should be alone. <clears throat> now, in verses 19 and 20, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the means by which God made Adam aware of his need for a wife, a helper comparable to him, is an interesting one. Uh, and, and God causes this to dawn upon Adam in a, in a unique way. So he set Adam to naming the animals, and the naming of the animals by Adam was an expression of the fact that man has a dominion over the animal uh, kingdom of our authority. And uh, so he set to naming the animals, and presumably these animals are brought uh, before Adam in pairs, and so he begins to name them one after another. And as he does, he begins to, uh, begins to dawn on him that he lacks uh, the companionship that he is seeing in each of these pairs of, of animals and that they enjoyed. And so as he named and he named and he named and he named, uh, perhaps with a hope, as perhaps a line is formed, that somehow uh, uh, something is going to emerge that is going to be a helper that is comparable uh, to him, and, this, and she will appear uh, in, in the line, uh, in, the, in the process. It is important to notice that the purpose for which Eve was created is given to us in the account uh, long before she is uh, created in the passage. And, uh, and before we're given the details of her creation. Uh, notice there's a phrase that's repeated, uh, in, uh, first in verse 18 and then in verse 20, and she is described as a helper comparable to him, that is to uh, Adam. The Hebrew word the, uh, for helper there is uh, azer, and uh, helper is a very, very accurate translation of the word. One uh, commentator put it this way. He said, the word essentially describes one who provides what is lacking in the man, uh, who can do what the man alone cannot do. The man is thus created in such a way that he needs the help of a partner. And that is very outstanding in terms of what God is communicating in, in all of this. It is also uh, important to understand that the, the term of helper is not at all uh, intended to be, nor should it be, demeaning to women in, in any way. Because that, that word as it's used in the Old Testament, uh, it's usually used to describe God himself in his role as a helper uh, to man. And it can never be demeaning to have any role or characteristic of God himself ascribed to us. The word uh, for a comparable is kenegdo, uh, and that word means according to his opposite or over against or counterpoint. It means that the woman would share the man's nature, 
That is that whatever the man uh, received from uh, at, at creation, she would have all of that as well, and yet be a uh, complementary counterpart. She would be something that he cannot quite be, and he will be to her something that she cannot quite be. In other words, needing one another in order to fulfill God's purpose for mankind. Again, uh, meeting the need for companionship in man and in woman, and then also uh, the, the, sp the spiritual and intellectual and emotional exchange that in is in, uh, happens in a relationship, the marriage relationship, but then all of this is certainly uh, uh, ha has a focus upon uh, the sexual pleasure related to married life and the ability uh, now that they would have to obey God's command to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, Eve's creation here is described for us in verse 21 and then into verse 22. God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, uh, removed one of his ribs, and then closed him back up as good as new. So here we have God as a surgeon, an anesthesiologist, and, uh, and, and puts him all back together. And then God formed Eve from of the rib that he had taken from, uh, from Adam. And so, uh, the, unlike Adam, Eve was not created from the earth, but she was created, God tells us, from a rib taken from uh, Adam. Uh, it's very clear that in whatever God took from Adam in order to form woman, uh, women, the uh, female, Eve, uh, that, that it involved both bone and flesh, because you, you notice that uh, in verse 23, Adam declares upon seeing Eve, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so God might have formed Eve uh, around the rib itself or uh, had taken as we're able to now clone animals and do all kinds of things on the basis of uh, DNA and cells and this kind of thing. He certainly doesn't need our science to accomplish that. All we know is that uh, by virtue of doing it this way, there's an absolute relationship between, uh, between uh, the two. And uh, God could have just readily spoken Eve into existence out of nothing, but He doesn't. He creates her out of Adam, and He does so because clearly He uh, wants to uh, communicate something to us. Uh, you should know uh, concerning this creation of Eve, that there is a, a, an old story uh, of a conversation between uh, God and man. And uh, God said to Adam, I'm going to create a beautiful woman for you, uh, to love you, to care for you, to complete you, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And uh, Adam thought about it for a while, and he said, what can I get for a rib? And uh, uh, I don't believe the story at all, not for a moment. I just wanted you to know uh, the kind of thing that's floating around out there. I'm glad you could laugh. Nobody can laugh anymore today, can they? Nothing about marriage, nothing about sexes, nothing about anything. It's the most sterile environment that these politically correct idiots are imposing upon uh, all of us. And an intellectual steri sterility as well. So keep your sense of humor. 
uh, you're going to need it. And uh, so <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I sense a rant, a rant coming and I, I don't want to uh, go there on that. I think that Matthew Henry uh, got a lot closer to the truth when he wrote of this. He said, in every handling of this passage, uh, Matthew Henry ought to be quoted on this. And perhaps you've heard it before, but it'll only make you realize how much that's true. He said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him or out of his feet to be trampled upon uh, by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And that quote is an absolute classic, and there's a reason for it, because it clearly states some of the reasons why God created Eve uh, out of Adam. Now, you notice in verse uh, 22 that having created Eve, God then presented Eve to Adam, and he can hardly contain his excitement. I mean, his excitement over this helper comparable to him uh, fairly leaps off of the page. And uh, when he declares, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this is what I've been looking for. And uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so here you have the first uh, re uh, recorded human words in the Bible. And he declares this now, this is something completely different from the animal kingdom uh, that has been paraded before him. This is what he's been waiting for. This is the completeness that he's been uh, longing for, much better than a giraffe. And so he declared her to be bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, uh, and her name, there is uh, no truth to the rumor that he called her a woman because he saw her and said, wow, man. Uh, I heard a preacher say that one time. And uh, it, there's a reason that he calls her woman uh, the, the, uh, and the name that he, he gave to her. And... Uh, it, it's, uh, it means out of man, she shall be called woman, uh, 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 Isha, because from man, Ish, uh, she was taken. In other words, uh, she is spiritually, emotionally, uh, intellectually, and physically qualified to be his mate, to be exactly as God uh, intended uh, her to be, and that is a helper comparable to him. Now, what's fascinating that, that God does here in the passage is that upon uh, creating both of them, he then immediately institutes this thing uh, called marriage, the ordinance of, of marriage. And you notice that Adam uh, finishes his speaking there in verse uh, 23. And it's important to realize that what is recorded there in verse 24 and verse 25 is not a continuation of what Adam is saying. Uh, in verse 24, you now have the Holy Spirit uh, breaking in and continuing uh, the entire narrative. It's God speaking. And what is God speaking about? What he speaks about immediately is the establishment by God of the institution of marriage. That's what verse 24 is all about. Uh, Jesus affirmed this when he was confronted by the Pharisees in his day, and they brought him a question about 
you know, from the law of Moses about divorcing, and under the law of Moses, there was a provision that was given that you could divorce your wife as long as there was a, a certificate of divorce, as long as it was, it was a formal procedure. And they wanted to draw him into what was a, a great controversy among the religious uh, thinkers in those, uh, in, in those days. And so they posed the question uh, uh, to him. And Jesus refused to be pulled into the controversy and made it a teachable moment. And so instead of going back to the law of Moses to, to argue things from where they went, uh, Jesus, when he talked about marriage, he, with them, he went all the way back to these verses in Genesis chapter uh, 2 and, uh, and, and said, declared in essence that this is his standard for marriage and what is to be uh, a, the standard in terms of marriage for all people, but certainly for uh, his people, those that uh, claim to be Christians. Uh, Mark chapter 10, I'll read the, the exchange to you. And Jesus answered and said to them, the Pharisees, because of the hardness of your heart, he that is Moses wrote you this precept, this, this provision for divorce with a writing of divorcement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man uh, separate. Jesus goes back to this place and is a definition, the definition of marriage in the Bible. I think it is vitally, vitally important today that everyone, and certainly every single Christian, understands that marriage is an institution of God to understand that he created it. Marriage does not exist in human history as an invention of man. It is an institution of God. And because it isn't an invention of man, man has no right to alter it in any way or to change it or to redefine it. Man is certainly free to go off and come up with something on his own, to invent something of his own in this regard, call it whatever uh, he wants. But human beings, mankind, you and I, are not free to co-opt marriage from God and then make it whatever we want it to be. And certainly the fact that same-sex marriage was made legal by the United States Supreme Court in 2015 testifies to the fact that among a majority of the Supreme uh, Court at the time, and no doubt a majority of the citizens of the United States, no longer view marriage as an institution of God. In fact, they don't even view it supremely as re uh, religious, but as something that has become largely non-religious and secular. And it speaks to how uh, biblically illiterate uh, this nation has become uh, on, on all issues 
and how rapidly we are jettisoning this once biblical foundation for our morality and for our uh, laws. I think it's also important to realize that in our redefinition of marriage in the United States of America, as we have done now to uh, include homosexual couples and to even endorse now homosexual uh, marriage, much less uh, as we've done, put it on an equal footing with heterosexual marriage, that we have now uh, entered into completely uncharted waters uh, in, in this regard. This has never been done before in human history. In all of the debauchery of the Greek Empire, all of the debauchery of the Roman Empire, of civilizations before and, and after, in all of the wickedness of Rome, the sensual and, and sexual depravity of Rome, and of so many of uh, her emperors and all, no one ever in human history has stepped forward and then now uh, decided to, uh, to redefine marriage. You think about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning where we sit in human history, especially with some knowledge of, of the Bible and the Old Testament. Uh, never before in human history has mankind felt brazen enough or arrogant enough to take their rebellion against God to this place. And yet we have as a nation, and it will not have a good ending because you cannot poke God in the eye and have a good ending. You cannot steal his institutions from him and have it uh, end well. You cannot disrespect God uh, in this uh, way. And all of this, of course, is exactly as the Bible tells us would be the case in the world uh, immediately before the, the rapture of the church. So often, and you've heard it and I've heard it, but in, in, in this uh, redefining uh, of marriage is that uh, the Supreme Court did, the argument that is made for expanding God's definition of marriage to include same-sex marriage uh, by some within the, the homosexual community is uh, something like, well, look at how high the divorce rate is among heterosexual marriages. And uh, could we treat marriage uh, any worse or with any greater contempt than, than what you, you heterosexuals have done? But the problem with the argument is that the failure of the statistics that they produce uh, reveal and, and, and bring forth that has nothing to do with uh, the institution of marriage itself. Those statistics, however abysmal they are, they are not a reflection on the institution itself. It's a reflection upon either one or both parties uh, engaged in that uh, particular marriage. My mother had two sayings that she didn't input a lot into our lives when we were growing up, but there were two things that she was famous for saying to us over and over again. Number one, it's an unfair world. And that's a good preparation for life, by the way. And then the second thing that she would tell us is, two wrongs don't make a right. 
And it absolutely applies to this. What the heterosexual uh, people have done uh, to marriage and the wrong that has been done there never allows, uh, it justifies a second wrong being done. Everybody is wrong in, in, in the, the abuse of, of marriage or making it something less than, than what God intends it to be. And today, increasingly, and I mean ignorantly, People want to partake in the institution of marriage. They want all of the blessings of marriage, but they do not want the things that are foundational uh, to it. And they don't realize that if you fiddle with the foundation, if you change the foundation, then you mar the entire thing. It will cease to be the blessing that God intends it to be in in the human uh, uh, condition. Now, uh, thankfully, God tells us what are to be the marks of this institution of marriage that he has provided uh, to us. And he records them in verse 24. He tells us that the first mark clearly is that it is intended uh, solely for a man and for a woman. He is uniting Adam and Eve in holy matrimony. Second, that it involves a man leaving his father and his mother. Uh, that is, that he and she are to establish a new home upon being married that is distinct from uh, their parents. It doesn't mean that they shun the rest of their extended family uh, as a result of being married, but when they were in the home and under those parents, they were under that authority structure. When a, a, a man and woman are married, they establish an entirely different authority structure uh, that, is, that is based upon them, their marriage, the family that will, uh, will come uh, out of that. The old authority structure has ended and a new one has begun. Third, uh, the marriage involves not only leaving a father and mother, but it, it involves cleaving. Uh, as it's put in the New King James, he shall be joined to his, uh, his wife, I don't, and vice versa. I, I prefer, I think it's in the Old King James where it doesn't talk about being joined to his wife, but he shall cleave to his wife. That's the, the old word that was used. And that, that word speaks of a deep and total commitment uh, to the marriage and to the person that, uh, uh, that they are marrying. Uh, it carries the idea that cleave does of being welded, of being glued together. In other words, they are now to be inseparable, they are to be indivisible. Um, when I was a much younger man, I um, took a hand at trying to build some furniture for a while. And, uh, and one of the products that you could have in order to uh, do that was this glue product called weldwood. Once you put two pieces of wood together with that weldwood and you allowed it to dry, uh, you could never break that wood at that seam. Uh, that, those pieces of wood will break every other place except at that seam. That's the tightness, the permanence uh, of the union that is described there. And it's exactly what God is, is, uh, is talking a, a, about here. The commitment is to be for life, 
and uh, barring the death of, of the marriage partner or sexual unfaithfulness on the part of, uh, of the, uh, a partner or the unwillingness if we're married to a, a non-Christian who is unwilling to live with our Christian faith and they abandon us as, as a result. Uh, uh, those are, uh, the, other than that, the commitment is to be for life. And this is why when I uh, unite people in, in marriage and I'm asked to officiate at a marriage ceremony, I always include the line uh, and have them repeat the line, each the bride and the groom, uh, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish uh, until death do us Part. And the reason that I include that in the vows is that biblically, that is the commitment that is being made before God and other people that are assembled there. That is the commitment that the institution of God uh, demands of people that are going to engage in that, that institution, a commitment to uh, be joined and to cleave. Uh, I think we need to hear it in how uh, wayward our culture is uh, these days and how casual everything is become. But biblically, no one is to enter into marriage casually or uh, in terms of the, the uh, a commitment that is made in, to the, the spouse that they're marrying or to God, uh, the commitment should never be less than this. There should never be the idea, I'll marry him, I'll marry her, we'll try that and we'll see how uh, it works out. And already one foot is out the door. And these kind of attitudes toward, uh, toward marriage is a very, uh, those are understanding of marriage that is very foreign to what God describes marriage uh, to be. And any lesser commitment uh, to marriage than a cleaving uh, commitment is unworthy of the institution of marriage. The fourth thing that he brings out that marks this institution of marriage. He says, and they shall become one flesh. And it communicates the idea that these people in the eyes of God are no longer seen as uh, purely individuals, but, th but they have now become one in the eyes of God. And it also speaks of the physical or the sexual relationship uh, in marriage. You, you might remember that in chapter 1, verse 28, when God commanded uh, Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, speaking of the, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, he gives them that command, uh, but uh, he, significantly, he did not allow for the fulfillment of the sexual relationship to occur until he had also established the institution of marriage. And it is uh, important to realize that this is the only, it is only within the institution of marriage and the commitment of marriage that a man and woman can enjoy a non-sinful expression of a, a physical or a sexual relationship. And all uh, sex outside of marriage, it pollutes not just marriage, but it pollutes sex. 
It defiles it, it stains it in a way that God never intended. And, and you look even within my lifetime, within this, the, the culture that, that we, we live in, and you look at how sexual immorality ha- has cheapened how sex as is viewed by the world around us. It's just a hookup. It's just a physical uh, thing. It's just an amusement. It's just y- y- this, this kind of level that it has been uh, dropped down to by the culture instead of uh, viewing it as something that is honest to God, uh, something that is sacred, something that is holy between a man and a woman, something that is beautiful, something uh, that is a beautiful part of marriage. And this beautiful gift of God has been taken into uh, the gutter. And God declares concerning the sexual uh, relationship in his word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, It says, marriage is honorable among all, and the uh, marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is honorable among all, and it is within the context of that marriage relationship and that commitment that the marriage bed, the sexual relationship, is uh, undefiled. And so when he talks about marriage is honorable among all, the word honor there literally means honored, respected, valued, prized, uh, precious. And the sexual relationship outside of that commitment uh, to one another, everything else dishonors. Not only marriage, but it dishonors uh, sex as well. I also think that it's important to realize, because this may just be an absolute uh, wow moment for our culture uh, in, in terms of its understanding of things. It's very important to realize that sex is God's idea, uh, that it is His creation. And because it is His creation, this makes Him alone the expert on sex. Uh, years ago, she's still alive now, but some of you that lived long enough, you remember when uh, Dr. Ruth, that little short German woman, was the great uh, single expert on sex in, uh, in America. And basically, people would ask her questions, and her answer was always, you know, do it a little bit more, and then giggle, and we all, everybody got a big kick out of it and said, wow, what an authority. Um, uh, and, but you know, to make her the America's sex experts, just nonsense. Uh, Masters and Johnsons are not the expert on sex. The Kinsey Institute uh, is not the expert on sex. Only God is the expert on sex. And it is God who created the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. He is not embarrassed about it, or he would have never put it uh, in the creation, and he would have never put it in the book. And it's important to understand that the sexual relationship uh, between uh, a husband and wife, all of this is pre-fall, and and, and it initiated pre-fall. Sex is not a part of the fall. It is pre-fall and is a part of what God declared not only to be good at the end of his creation, but to be very good. 
You say, why make uh, such a big deal out of this? Because I like to make you feel uncomfortable. But that's not it. And I know you're not uncomfortable. And, and the reason that I make a big deal out of it is because the world and the devil have now come along and they claim to be the real experts on sex. And they have convinced an entire world uh, that they know everything about this and God knows nothing uh, about any of this. The indoctrination is, uh, is thorough and, and astonishing. And, uh, but they aren't the experts, not the world, not the devil. God is the expert concerning sex, and it's a wise person who recognizes that and then submits to his wisdom, God's wisdom and his direction concerning it. I think that the average person's uh, concept of, of Christians in sex uh, in, in terms of how it's all portrayed before the world uh, is that we couldn't know the first thing about it because surely the God of the Bible is uh, so uptight about sex and so uptight about the subject that, uh, that the Bible has nothing to say uh, about it. And I think the perception of Christians and God and the Bible in terms of sex, in terms of somebody on the outside looking in, they must marvel when a Christian wife gets pregnant, assuming that some miracle has occurred that didn't require sexual intercourse. Or that if it did, that the Christian husband and wife engaged in it as just some kind of act of joyless drudgery just to, for the purpose of procreation. And you think, I think you think about that kind of a perception of the Bible or God or Christianity. It's not only to be ignorant of Genesis chapter 2, it's to be completely ignorant of the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Those folks are clearly enjoying themselves in that book if you have never read it. You talk about inv inventive uh, in, in, uh, in the context of a marriage relationship. I mean, you've got uh, everything going on in a description of, of the joy of a, a marital sexual relationship in Song of Solomon. Uh, everything but Lionel Richie singing in the background. <laughs> I mean, really, you read it, it's so, it's so joyous, it's so free, it's so uninhibited, and, uh, and, and so pure. And, and that's how God intends it to be. But it can only be that if, if, if we explore it and enjoy it with a person who is committed enough to us uh, to marry us. And it's beautiful and it is even a holy experience. It is a sacred experience, but only when it's experienced God's way. And I'd like to also say in this regard that you don't have to become an expert on sex before getting married. Uh, the, uh, sometimes people will, you know, the, the, a guy will try the line, and women have become so much like men now, was, I suppose that there's a crossover on it. But, you know, we ought to get involved sexually before we get married just so that it works. Listen, go home and take a cold shower and go on Wikipedia and uh, pull up the human anatomy of male and female, and that's all you need to know about that it will work. It will work just fine. <laughs> Uh, you know, this, this is not a complicated uh, 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 thing. But, but the, the wonderful thing about 
going into marriage with an innocence related to, to all of this, and certainly not feeling the necessity of being an expert before you get married, is because when you make that lifelong commitment to someone when you marry them, you have now the rest of your life to figure that out, to just chill, just relax, and grow in that now for the rest of your life because the commitment has been made to uh, be together for the rest of your life. That's a lot of time to figure a lot of things out and to enjoy it. And there's no pressure at all in that. There isn't the pressure in, within marriage, within that, that kind of a commitment that is, it, 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 that is like the pressure of a one-night stand. You notice in verse 25 uh, that uh, we're told that they were both naked and not ashamed. And this speaks of the innocence and the purity of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. But even in our fallen state as, as human beings today, the truth remains that it is only from within the context of marriage that a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, can be naked before one another without uh, shame. And, uh, and, and otherwise something has been seared. Let me close with an application here. As we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks, you look at how simple, when, you go, when you're in Genesis chapters one, two, and three, you're in the foundation of everything in terms of not only the Bible, but everything about the world that you and I uh, live in on a daily basis. And, and you look at how in these first couple of chapters, how simple and wise and straightforward God's word is in terms of defining gender, in terms of defining marriage, uh, and in defining the expression of this, this great blessing of God called sex. And then look at the ferocity of the attack of our culture upon these three great truths, these three great revelations uh, from uh, God's Word, and these three great revelations from God that have served mankind and have produced a stable foundation for civilization for hundreds of years. And these truths are found within a stone's throw of one another in the Bible, in the very first two uh, chapters. And, and do you think that all of these new definitions of gender and marriage and how the sexual relationship is, is to be expressed, do you think these new understandings and definitions are going to build stronger marriages and stronger families and a stronger culture and society and a stronger world? They will not. Intuitively, we know it. Even if we don't want to accept God's definitions, we know that if you put this up against this, they do not compare. If I ever take the de defining of these things and I define them in making not my pleasure supreme, but is what is right in the eyes of God and what is right with other people and what is right for mankind as a whole. There is no comparison between what God says in His Word and the lie and the hoax that is uh, uh, attempting to be uh, foisted upon all of us in all three of, 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 of these areas. Uh, 
And, and that's not the worst of it. Because in this rebellion against God in, in his definitions of, of all of this, uh, one day every single one of us are going to stand uh, before this God and every single person in this culture. And we're going to stand before the God that we are poking in the eye and worse every single day and uh, continually uh, disrespecting. Our, our nation and much of our world is absolutely 100% currently betting that God does not exist. They have put all of the chips, they're gambling everything on the fact that God does not exist. And the problem is, for them, is that he does. And it's an absolute disaster what we are watching unfold before our very eyes today, the foundation, how it is being uh, attacked. I mean, here you have, as you talk about the foundation of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, but specifically 1 and 2, you picture all of this as a house, and the world and the devil comes, and people do. They attack this house, this thing that God has described in his word, and they begin by attacking and uh, dismantling the roof or taking out a wall, and so the attack has been what it has been all the way through the ages. But now you have an unprecedented attack within our culture and world against the foundation. And when you take and you destroy the foundation and try to replace it with something else, it will all collapse under its own uh, weight. And it will collapse. And it will collapse. And the good news, though, is that we don't have to participate in any of this. Uh, the redefining of gender and marriage and sex away from God's intent. Someone might uh, 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 say, well, Pastor Damien, what is happening today in terms of the sexual revolution and on all these other issues as well, I mean, and, and, and marriage and, and uh, gender and all, it's just like a tidal wave. I mean, how can you get up and preach a sermon like that? There's such a contrast between what God's Word says and the culture says, and the gap is so, uh, so huge. I mean, who uh, would choose what God has to say about these issues as opposed to what the culture is offering? And I get it. I get that. I understand that very well. And the answer to that question, to that who, is only someone with a relationship with God. And the good news is that every one of us can have that relationship. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives by virtue of putting, repenting of our sins, putting our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we are born again, He brings with Him a will to do and a power to do of God's good pleasure. He will supernaturally bring into our lives a desire to live for God that is even greater than our desire for sin, and a power to live for God that is greater than even the pull of the world towards sin. And the only way to stand against the juggernaut of these redefinitions and the arrogance that it, of mankind that is on full display today is to get a relationship with God yourself personally, ourselves personally, 
It is only that person who is going to be successful in standing in the midst of the disaster that is unfolding all around us. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you have been created for. And then you watch him bring. I don't care what your addictions are. I don't care what you love. I don't care what you think. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've seen. God will come into your life, and he will free you from what you think you could never be freed from, whether in terms of addiction and practice or even worldview or how you see things. The Holy Spirit will come into your life and give you a love for God and a desire for purity that is greater than anything that is pulling you away from Him. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving. And then to enter into the beauty of life as God intends it to be. If you, whatever your need might be this morning, I want you to know that these same men and women would be happy to uh, pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray that you would use your word and our time spent in it today to confirm and to affirm your truth by the voice of your Holy Spirit in every person who knows you and loves you and understands this to be the truth in the middle of the moral and spiritual juggernaut that is all around us. And Lord, I pray equally for each person that doesn't know you, that sits here right now, and for whom this is the first time they've heard any of this, that they would see the great gulf that exists between you and your word and what is being sold to them in this culture and maybe even what they are fully participating in, and that there would be a conviction, Lord, of the life that they're living, and a conviction that would not lead to condemnation, but that they would realize that, no, you are right, and your ways are right and true, and that they would want to be on the right side of you and all of this and so much more. And we pray that you would bring them into your kingdom and into the glory and the wonder and the purity and the joy and the beauty of the relationship with you that I have tried in the smallest of measures to describe here this morning. And we ask for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.